Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Pastor James Biddle and Emmanuel Assemblies of God in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're so glad you've taken the time to listen. If you're ever in our area, we invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For times and locations, please visit at EmmanuelAG.com. Remember, we are blessed to be a blessing. Thank you. It's living and active. We're here to hear your voice. And Father, I just thank you that your, your sheep know your voice and another will not follow. We commit tonight to hearing your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Tonight, I'm not going to really preach. Um, I'm going to teach just because of the subject matter. It's so detailed. I have so many notes I want to share. And I'm taking this from a little different perspective. <clears throat> we are going to be looking at the crucifixion. Of course, we all know about the crucifixion. We've heard about it. So there's obviously the, the major theological side of what happened on the on the cross and the crucifixion, which we'll touch on. But I really want to take this passage and kind of dissect it from a theological vantage point and from a historical vantage point. I want to bring out some things. And when we leave tonight, we'll have a greater revelation of how much God loved us because of the cross and the crucifixion. So Jesus has been through three public trials with the religious leaders. He's been through three public trials with the civil leaders and he's been scourged and flogged. Peter has denied him. The disciples have fled and left. His best friend Judas has betrayed him. One of his close friends has betrayed him. Now we find ourselves at the pinnacle, really, of, of the gospel, the crucifixion and resurrection. The whole Bible points to these events, points to the death of Jesus and the, the namely, primarily, the resurrection. This is, this is the pillar that all of the Bible stands on. We have no Christianity without the death and resurrection of Jesus. And while we celebrate and, and honor what Jesus did on the cross, the real victory came in the resurrection. That's why, honestly, I'm not a big fan of, of crosses. I'm not against crosses, but you know what? Madonna wears a cross, and it means nothing to her. So thank God for the cross. We're going to look at the cross. It has a message. It has a meaning. But thank God for the resurrection. We're going to see tonight, Luis, that thousands of people died on crosses, and there's nothing holy about their death. Of course, what makes Jesus' death holy is that He was the sinless Lamb of God. And not only was, was the cross the instrument of death, but Jesus took on the weight of the world. Jesus took on all of our sin. And tonight we're going to get a glimpse into what that felt like. Tonight we're going to get a glimpse into that, what that looked like. The Bible says, He who knew no sin became sin. You see, you and I, we know sin. Jesus knew no sin. Not only did He not end up knowing sin, he became sin. Think about the weight of that matter. He who knew no sin became sin so that we who knew no righteousness could become the righteousness of God. He took our place. It's the great swap. It's the great exchange. Everything unholy in me was transferred to him on the cross and everything holy in Him was transferred to me in the resurrection. It's an amazing exchange, but yet people reject it every single day. People reject the gift of God every single day. Let's start by looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. This will set the stage for tonight. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 1, 18, the Bible declares, For the word of the cross, the message of the cross, 
is foolishness to those who are perishing. Meaning the cross doesn't mean anything to those who are blinded, those who are not being saved, i.e. Madonna, who will wear a cross. It doesn't mean anything to her. There's no message in it to her. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message of the cross, the message of Jesus and his resurrection, it is the power of God. So let's jump in tonight, Mark chapter 20. I'm going to stay close to my notes because there's a lot of data here that I want to uncover and cover with you. So I want to stay close to my notes. Mark chapter 15, let's look in verse 20. And after they had mocked him, they took a purple robe off him and put his own garments on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Now I want to point out, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the crucifixion. I will bring some... Uh, illustrations of crucifixion just to help our minds go to the right place tonight. But the gospel writers spend very little detail on the crucifixion. Here's why. It's not how he died, it's why he died. It's who he was and why he died is what they focus on. So the gospel writers do not go into a lot of detail concerning this gruesome, terrible event. Now, now mark this down in your memory. Crucifixion was so terrible that it was not allowed to be performed on Roman citizens. And another thing that is shocking is that crucifixion, it was ordered by the Jewish high priest. Remember the high priest took Jesus to Pilate, and they were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. This is not the normal method of execution for Jewish folks, for the Jewish legal system. They would kill people in three ways. Number one, by stoning. Number two, by strangulation. Number three, by burning. That's how they executed people. So for Jesus to be executed by crucifixion was literally the lowest demeaning thing that they could have ever put him through. It was the most humiliating, the most excruciating. How many of you said, I was in excruciating pain? How many of you have ever said that? The word excruciating comes from the root word crucifixion, excruci, crucifixion. It's the same root word. That word came from the pain that was endured through crucifixion. I will no longer say I'm in excruciating pain just after studying that because I've never been crucified and I can't imagine. We'll, we'll talk about this later. But crucifixion, Joyce, was designed to last for days. That's one of the miracles is that Jesus actually gave up his life so fast. Remember when they came to the thieves on the cross, they broke their legs? And we'll talk about this in more detail. But that's because they were standing on a on a little pedestal on the, on the cross and they would lift up to have to breathe. And you basically would just expire. That's the, You died not from... Uh, trauma or blunt force trauma, you died from suffocation because you had no more strength to lift yourself up to take a breath. And so they broke the legs of the thieves so they would die sooner, so they couldn't lift up to take oxygen. And when they came to Jesus, they found he was already dead. Pilate didn't believe it. They went and told Pilate. Pilate said, go send a centurion to check and make sure. Because the crucifixion was invented by the Phoenicians, but it was perfected by the Romans. And so they had this thing down to a science where you would literally hang there and suffer for days, two to three days. And it was an example to all, do not mess with Rome. Do not revolt against Rome because this is what will happen to you. So it was so terrible that Roman citizens couldn't even be crucified. Now many times the, the criminal would agonize again for days. And it was a, it was a strong message. Do not cross Rome. So look at verse 21. <clears throat> the Bible declares, So they pressed into service. This is a real unique word here. They pressed into service. This means they, they recruited someone here 
uh, by compulsory. They were saying, just like the government could confiscate your property, it's the same word here, the same phrasing. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country. How many know he was either in the wrong place at the wrong time, or as we'll see in a minute, he might have been in the right place at the right time. So they grab someone. They, they grab a, pre, a passerby from the country of Cyrene, and his name is Simeon. He's the father of Alexander and Rufus, and they chose him to bear his cross. How many of you glad your name's not Rufus? <laughs> You're calling rolling school. Peter, John, Rufus, <laughs> or Doofus. Is that a D or an R? Do, Doofus? Or, how many know you know you're glad your name's not Rufus? Now, let me just explain something to you here. Anytime you see someone mentioned by name, we should take note. Because the New Testament wasn't just all about name dropping for the sake of name dropping. If your name made it into the New Testament, there are countless men and women who did great things for God and we do not know their name at all. But this man, Simeon here, uh, or, or Simon, whichever way you want to say it, Simon of Cyrene, he is mentioned and he's not only him but his children, Alexander and Rufus. This could potentially mean, we don't know for sure, but this could potentially mean that they were well known by the early church. There is a Rufus mentioned in Romans 16. Mark was writing the gospel according to Peter to the Romans. It is very, very possible that that's the same Rufus, meaning they were having a tremendous impact, meaning when you encounter Jesus, your life can be changed. So this man possibly went on to do great things in the church with his children. We don't know that for sure, but that's just a potential. And so what, what happens here is the Romans had a, a law that they could recruit you to help them for one mile. Have you ever heard the saying, go the extra mile? Going the extra mile is when a Roman governor, Roman soldier, Roman official would, would call you and recruit you. Whatever you're doing, you have to stop. And you are obligated under the law to carry their baggage, to carry their whatever, to help them for one mile. And then so for one mile, they had you. But on the extra mile, you would go the extra mile, meaning, hey, I know you forced me to go one mile, but because I love God and because I honor God, I'm going to go another mile. And that's how they would witness to these soldiers. So this is the law that they invoked when they grabbed Simon of Cyrene, and they, they, they called him to carry the cross of Jesus. Now, let me just make a note here that they, they would take the criminals, Pastor Rick, through the longest route through the city. And it takes them out of the cities we're going to see in just a moment. And so they would, they would the, the culture and tradition tells us that the centurion would lead the procession and they have the criminal carrying the cross and they would take them the longest route possible through the city. And they would, the, it was almost, I see almost in my head a parade. They would have a, 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 a something with writing on it and they would hold it up and they would walk like this and it would have the charge against the criminal and they would lead them through. Now this is Passover. This is the busiest time in Jerusalem. There are thousands and thousands of people, and this Roman centurion, this Roman guard is leading this processional, and Simon happens to just be walking down the lane, and here comes this criminal. Here he is, king of the Jews. Here he is, king of the Jews. And they're reciting the charges against Jesus. They're taking the long way through the city to show everyone what happens to you if you revolt against Rome. Remember, they thought Jesus was a, a, an insurrectionist. They thought he was going to lead a revolt and take over the kingdom. And so they would take the longest route to, to, to display the criminal to the most people. They would carry the son, and Simon is just recruited. He's just there. And they say, hey, you, imagine his clothing, how bloody. And, and imagine, I don't want to... 
I don't want to wipe up clear liquid in a restroom somewhere, you know, that's not mine. Come on, right? Imagine the blood and the, the mess that he had to just submit himself to. Can you imagine carrying the cross of the Savior of the world? What that must have done to him? I don't know if he knew anything about Jesus or not. And so notice this here. Look in verse 22. So they brought him to the place of Golgotha. <laughs> and another thing I love about the names here that we see is the Bible is about real people in a real time encountering a real God. This is not just a fairy tale. This is not just a story. That's why I try not to tell my kids we're going to do a Bible story. We try to. We don't always do it perfectly, but we say we're going to have a Bible lesson. Because how many know stories can be made up? This is a Bible lesson. So I don't want them to think this is just some fiction like Mickey Mouse. How many know Mickey Mouse is just a story? The Bible has a story, but it is true. So we're going to teach our kids a Bible lesson. So verse 22, they brought Jesus to the place of Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. Now a couple of things here in my study that were very interesting. I've always thought it was the place of the skull, maybe because so many people died there and there were skulls all around. But after studying, the Jews were absolutely terrified of leaving bones exposed. It was the Jewish culture that they would even bury criminals, i.e., that's why they said, we will let the body of Jesus be buried. They would not have left bones out and exposed. It, was, it would pollute the city. It would not have happened in their culture. So there's two other possible things why this was called the place of the skull. One, scholars think that the hill that they went to, the rock, the rock formation looked like a skull. That's very possible. Uh, second is, some people say this is where the head of Goliath was actually buried. Uh, remember, the Bible says that David cut off the head of Goliath and he took it to Saul. And then there's one little verse that says, and he took the head to Jerusalem. And so some people think that potentially the head of Goliath was buried here. Therefore, it's called the place of the skull. And so notice this here in verse 24. <coughs> or 23, I'm sorry. I skipped one, 23. So they lead him to the place of the school. Now they try to give Jesus wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And I've heard so many different theories on this, so many different things that people say. And, and my conclusion is, is, is what I'm going to share with you. So they, now who's they? Everybody always thinks it's the Roman soldiers. And it could have been. We don't know. It could have been. But the Roman soldiers were not into showing mercy to criminals. And so if you notice here, they took the wine and mixed it with myrrh. This was a sedative. This was a muscle relaxer. This was the highest form of pain relief medicine that they had in the day. This would be given to, uh, if the soldiers gave it to the criminals, this is graphic now, but it's, it helps us in context. If the soldiers gave Jesus the wine mixed with myrrh, it was not, it was not so that the criminal would experience the deadening of the pain. It would be like you taking uh, morphine. And you know, imagine if you're going to go through a crucifixion, how much you would appreciate morphine. I mean, I take Tylenol before I go to the dentist, praise God, just to help out. This is the same type deal. But what, what would happen, y'all are like, you all are, you're a weenie, you know. You never know what the dentist is going to do, praise God. Yeah, you, could, you could floss. What is that? What is floss? And so the wine mixed with myrrh is a sedative. It's a pain medicine. And so sometimes, this is graphic now, but sometimes they would give it to the criminal to sedate them so they could nail them to the cross. Could you imagine how many men it would take to hold a resisting criminal down? All right, well, lay down. Okay, well, I guess I'm just going to lay here. No, I would rather you just stab me in the heart with a spear. 
Well, if you fight me, I'm going to cut your head off. Please. Let's end this now instead of suffering on the cross for three days. Every criminal in Jerusalem knew about crucifixions. Rome had crucified thousands. So if you're going to put Tito on the cross and nail him down, that boy's going to squirm. He's going to squirm like a fish out of water, right? I'm not going to lay down and just, okay, well, if that's what you want to do. So they would sedate them so they could nail them to the cross. Another tradition says, this is so interesting, there, there's a scripture in Deuteronomy that talks about caring for criminals. It's an old, old law. And there's a tradition that the Jewish women would actually mix this up and bring it, and it was a way they would minister to the criminals, and they would give them this wine mixed with myrrh. But he did not take it. Jesus knew about crucifixions. Jesus knew about this medicine. It had nothing to do with the wine that he didn't want to take it. It had to do with Jesus wanted to bear the full weight of our sin. Let it not be said that Jesus didn't fully go to the cross, and let it never be said that Jesus uh, only halfway uh, endured the shame and sin and suffering of the world. Jesus, I believe, wanted to go through the crucifixion so he could bear the full weight of the pain and the full weight of our sin. That's why I believe that he didn't take it. Now, notice this here in verse 24. Jesus did not want to lighten the load that he was about to go through. Verse 24, and they crucified him and divided up his garments. Notice, he kind of passes by and they crucified him. It's a major deal. But crucifixion, the method is not the message. The message is what is important. Why did they crucify him? Who was he? That is what the gospel writers focus on. They do not drag us down the road of the gruesome experience of crucifixion. They simply make a statement, almost pass over it. Notice this here. This is so interesting to me. They divided up his garments among themselves. This fulfilled prophecy that we will see from Psalm 22 in a minute that was from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. Now the Roman soldiers, this is how they would kind of get spoil. This was a part of their pay. They would keep the, the clothing and the garments and any possessions that the criminals had. The soldiers would get to take part of that. But Jesus' garments were undoubtedly ripped and beaten and bloody. They were worth nothing. No, no one would want these garments. Why would they gamble for them? I can see this as a sport. It's just, they were making sport of Jesus. They, they didn't want his clothing. They were Jesus was a nomad. Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head. He didn't have a washing machine, ladies and gentlemen. I don't think these were great clothes. And at this point, if Jesus had them on, they were, they were ripped and beaten, probably weren't even worth it. Why gamble for those? Because it was sport. Because they had nothing better to do. Because Jesus ain't going anywhere. He's hanging on the cross. What else are we going to do? Let's make fun. Let's make a game. Let's make sport. Let's cast lots and see who gets this man's garments. And casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. We're going to read this again later on in Psalm 22. Now let's go down to verse 25. Isn't this interesting? So it was the third hour when they crucified him. Now let's talk about the third hour. The Jewish... Time started at 6 a.m., went from 6 a.m. to 6 a.m. We go from 12 a.m. to 12 p.m. That's our 12-hour day. They would go from 6 to 6. So the third hour of the day, he's crucified at 9 a.m. in the morning. Remember early in the morning they took Jesus to Pilate's doorstep? Remember the Romans wanted everything done by noon. They would go on about their way. So this is 9 o'clock in the morning 
Jesus has been dragged to be crucified. Now let me tell you just a little bit here about the cross. There's so many misconceptions about the cross. There are three types of crosses that have been found archaeologically. One is an X, and, and that's what some people think Jesus was on. They would stretch the body out. And then one is more like a T, where it would be a, a beam and then the T across. The one that I believe is like our traditional cross that we have today, and here's why. Because we're going to read in a minute, they took the sign, the king of the Jews, and they mounted it above his head. You can't do that on the X, and you can't do that on the T. You said the first eye was a six. Yes. No, the third hour, if it's at six in the morning, would be six, seven, eight, nine. Right. Good question. There is something in noon that it is in here that we'll see. So, and also, we see these pictures of Jesus on a hill, and he's way, way, way up, suspended, and everybody's back looking. The cross was probably maybe two feet off the ground. And so, keep that in your mind. And he was right there. We're going to see this in a minute. They grabbed, they grabbed Simon. How did they grab him? A passerby. Who was passing by? They would take them just outside the city, and they crucified these people on a main road to Jerusalem. This is a main thoroughfare. This is like going down to Rutledge Pike and having a crucifixion, ladies and gentlemen. This is not something. We see pictures where this crucifixion, Jesus is way, way up, and he's way out in the middle of the desert, and there's just a few people around. He was in a crowded road to Jerusalem at the busiest time of the year, stripped of all dignity. And he did it for us. So notice this here, 9 a.m. in the morning. Now let me tell you something here that's important because we need to understand this. We need to address this. John 19 says it was the sixth hour of the day. So someone may come to you and say, the Bible's not true. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they say Jesus was crucified the third hour of the day. But John says it was the sixth hour of the day. What's the difference? Well, very easy to explain. Most of John is written in Roman time. Roman time was different. It started at 6, and you can pinpoint Jesus' trial to Pilate at around 6 a.m. So John is accurate in saying this crucifixion process started at the 6th hour of the day. And so you need to, need to be able to address those things. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written in Jewish time, and John, most of John is written in Roman time. And so that's just something to think about. Now, let me give you just a little bit of the crucifixion here, what would happen uh, it's either an X or it's a T or it's the cross like we know today. And they would actually, most people think that they were hanging. You, you've seen Jesus with pictures of nails in his palms. We have archaeological findings now that show the, the nail through the wrist, through the bones, because the palms would not have been uh, near enough to actually hold. And most archaeologists, how do you say that? Archaeological people, thank you, will tell you that even, even the nails through the, the bones in the wrist would not be enough to potentially hold the weight of the body. So they would usually tie them. They would be tied to the cross, and then they would put the, the nails in just for extra pain, just for extra torment. And they would actually stand on a little ledge. They would put a little ledge, and they would stand on that, and that's when they would have to raise their self up to get a breath, which is why crucifixions would last two to three days. So it's just, it's just an incredible uh, thing here that they would endure. Also, Jesus' back had been flogged. Can you imagine? Uh, have you ever had a splinter and moved a splinter, what that felt like? Can you imagine your back being ripped open and, and all that went on with the flogging and the beating and Jesus now has to stretch himself up just to take a breath and then let himself back down? That's where the word excruciating comes from. So I just want to bring that background to you. So now look here at 
number 26. Paul was. Uh, I don't think that it actually states how many times Jesus was whipped. I'm not sure. I'll have to look into that. So that's something we can look into. I'm not sure. So the inscription of the charge read against him, the king of the Jews. Now, this angered the religious leaders. They went to Pilate, we see in John's gospel, and tried to get Pilate to change it because they wanted to sign above Jesus' head, which was written in three languages. Rome was trying to make a point. This was written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. It's written in three languages, three signs. And it said, the king of the Jews. Pilate told the religious leaders, go fly a kite. They came to him and said, He's not the king of the Jews. You need to change the sign to say he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, I will put on the sign what I have put on the sign. And so this is yet another mockery. This is another blasphemy, if you will, against Jesus. So look at verse 27. <coughs> they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right, one on his left. Verse 28 is a scribal edit for us in the New Testament. It actually quotes an Old Testament passage. Verse 28 says, And the Scripture was fulfilled, and He was numbered with the transgressors. So we see Jesus crucified with a thief on the left and the right. Now look at verse 29. Did you get this image? He's on a very crowded road. He's two feet suspended off the ground. And there's all kinds of people just hustling by, seeing this man. They don't know what He did. Some of them knew Jesus they knew Jesus had healed people. Some of them knew that He had claimed to be the Son of God, and yet here He is captive. Here He is bound on the cross. And it says those passing by were hurling abuse at Him, hurling inserts at Him, wagging their heads, saying, Ha, you are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? You are going to destroy the temple and you are going to rebuild it in three days? You are tied up and nailed to a cross. How are you going to do that? Look at verse 30. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. Another gospel writer says, You saved others, now save yourself. Notice this here in verse 31. Not only were the people passing by hurling insults at him, he's helpless, defenseless. But it says, in the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes, were mocking him themselves. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. They never denied the miracles of Jesus. They knew Lazarus raised from the dead, but they thought he did it through the works of the devil. They were admitting that he saved others. That word saved is the Greek word for delivered. They admitted that he had delivered others. They said, but he cannot save himself. Now let's look in verse 33. Now we get into more of the why. Now we get into more of the commentary and we begin to see some miraculous things. There are four or possibly five miracles on the crucifixion that maybe you've never seen. Supernatural things that happen. So verse 32 says this, Let this Christ, King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. I want you to see this. Ready? The, the scribes and the priests are saying, Let this King... Come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Say this with me. So that we may see and that we may believe. 
You see, they had it exactly flipped from what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you believe, you'll see the glory of God. They said, we want to see, and then we will believe. Jesus taught, if you believe, you'll see the glory of God. It is not faith if you can see it. It is faith when you can't see it. It is faith to believe in that that you can't see. And it says, those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Now Luke in his gospel tells us later on that one of the thieves comes to repentance at the end of his life. But can you imagine even the turkeys that are being crucified with him, the thieves and robbers are insulting Jesus. I don't understand why they would do that. seems like everybody, including the devil, was ganging up here on Jesus. So now look at verse 33. Now the sixth hour came. This is noon. Notice this here. You ready? I'm going to show you something that's powerful. Darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. I'm going to show you something here maybe you've never seen before. And I didn't know this until I studied it out. We watch movies of the crucifixion, Pastor Rick, and it looks like a th thunderstorm rolls in. Or it looks like a dust storm's kicked up in the desert and it just kind of gets dim. That is not what happened at all, ladies and gentlemen. And darkness was very significant. Darkness means something here. And there are historical writings from other nations and other countries who take notice and acknowledge that this darkness hit their land at this time. This was not an isolated geographical event. If you look at the language in the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 23, if you look up the original Greek word, for, it says the sun was obscured. Literally, the sun was dimmed. The sun went out. God turned the sun off for three hours. God turned the sun off. Why? Because darkness in the Old Testament is always a symbol of judgment. Darkness is a symbol of divine judgment. What was this darkness like? Look with me at Exodus chapter 10. Remember the plagues of Egypt? Remember when God judged Egypt? One of the plagues was darkness. Look what Moses said in Exodus chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the sky that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. Notice this here, ready? Even a darkness which may be felt. Do you know that the earth would be uninhabitable, uninhabitable within weeks if the sun stopped shining? Our atmosphere is designed in such a way it would hold heat in for a time. Just like if you get a cup of coffee in the morning, put it in your thermos, It'll stay warm most of the day, but at some point, the heat is going to evaporate out. Within weeks, ladies and gentlemen, the earth would be uninhabitable. It would be too cold for humans to live on if the sun stopped shining. Uh, have you ever been to a solar eclipse? Remember last year, the solar eclipse? There was a noticeable difference in the temperature over two minutes. For two minutes, the sun was eclipsed. Or a minute and a half or something. And there is a noticeable difference in the cool of the air, in the temperature. God shut the sun off and it was a darkness that was felt. There was a massive drop in temperature on the earth because God was divinely judging sin in the person of Jesus. Some scholars that I read said when darkness came, that's when God turned his back on Jesus. That's when God separated himself from Jesus so he could put the full weight of the judgment of our sin and all of humanity came upon Christ at that moment. Now look with me in verse 22 of Exodus chapter 10. 
So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was a thick darkness all over the land of Egypt for three days. Look at verse 23. This, I believe, is exactly what happened when the, the sky fell dark for three hours. It was a darkness that was felt. I believe the temperature dropped. God turned out the sun. And it says, they could not even see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had to light in their dwellings. It was so dark, they could not even see one another. This is an amazing thing here. So why darkness? Because it's judgment. <laughs> Jesus was the light of the world. The light of the world was now being transferred to us. The light of the world was being extinguished. Now Jesus is the light of heaven. What about divine judgment in hell? Do you remember the Bible? And it's in Matthew chapter 8. They were cast into outer darkness. Darkness always represents divine judgment. And God was judging sin in the person of Jesus. During the great tribulation, the earth will be covered with darkness. So now look at verse 34 in Mark chapter 10. No, 15, sorry. I'm trying to go backwards here. I'm trying to extend the series, Pastor Rick. Mark 15, 34. And at the ninth hour, this is 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I know you've heard this before, but he, every other time Jesus addressed the Father, it was Father. And at this point, it was addressed as God. So the first miracle is darkness, supernatural event. The second is what we call separation. God separated himself so that he could impute the sin of the world on Jesus and bring judgment to his son whom he loved. I, I think the most agonizing part of the crucifixion for Jesus was not the pain. I believe it was a separation from the Father. All he had ever known was pure, unbroken, intimate relationship with the Father. And now that was taken away. You know, my kids are little, and sometimes they'll wake up in the morning and Tara will have taken the kids to school. And I cannot console them until mom gets home. They'll stand by the garage door and listen for the garage door to open. I mean, nothing works. Popsicles, Fruit Loops, chocolate pudding, it doesn't matter. They, yeah, Pastor Michael, that works for him, but it doesn't work for my children. Mix it all together. I will try that. Nothing will console them. They just cry for mommy. They're separated, and it's just for a moment. All Jesus ever knew was divine fellowship with the Father, and it was in, in, in eternity. It wasn't 33 years. It was eternity. And now he didn't have that intimacy, that covering, that connection, hoping the Father would keep his word hoping that God would honor His Word and rise Him from the dead, hoping that God would bring Him back and seat Him. Remember all the promises? You'll be seated in glory. You'll sit at my right hand. I'll esteem you, make you the King of kings and Lord. Jesus was on His own at this point on the cross. Look at verse 35. When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, He's calling Elijah. This is because the word for God in Aramaic Sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for God. And so they, they misheard. He's calling out to God now because they'd only heard Jesus say, Father. And now he's using a different Aramaic word 
And it sounds a lot like Elijah. And the Jews believed Elijah would come before any great spiritual event. They're saying maybe Elijah is going to come and help him and save him. Verse 36, someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine. They put it on a reed and they gave him a, a drink. Now notice this is because John says, Jesus said, I thirst. Jesus had a few things he needed to say on the cross. And he needed something. But, and someone went, and I'm going to share this with you. And I couldn't verify this. I verified this in some sources, but I couldn't verify this in other sources. But I did verify this from some trusted sources. But I'd never heard this before. And it makes sense, but I, I can't preach this to you as the gospel truth. But it, it does, in my mind, fit the narrative, especially if this were a soldier. The soldiers did not care about the criminals. They were not into showing compassion to the criminals. The Bible says someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine. Put That's vinegar, by the way. Sour wine is basically vinegar. And they put it on a reed and they gave him a drink, saying, let us see whether Elijah will come down and take him. But the next verse actually says it will read here that he did not take it. He did not take the drink. Now, let me just share this with you. This was confirmed in some reliable sources but I could not find it in other commentaries, but, but I think it's worth sharing, Pastor Rick. It's a little graphic, but you'll understand. So the Roman soldiers were assigned to the crucifixion, and they were not allowed to leave. And the Romans had a tradition when they would use the restroom that they would have a sponge on a reed, and that's how and, and it would sit in a jar of vinegar, and that's how they would cleanse themselves. There were no porta johns, no porta toilets. The soldiers couldn't leave the crucifixion scene, so they'd keep the, the sponge on a reed in vinegar. It's very likely that our Savior died with a taste of human excrement in his mouth because that's the utensils that were used for cleansing. Now, again, I, I don't know that, but it fits the narrative, another mockery of our, of our Lord. Now, I want to take you down a journey here in Psalm 22. We're going to read this. And it's going to blow you away. Everything we just read hundreds of years before. Listen to just, ladies and gentlemen, in Psalm 22, you ready? This was written before crucifixion was invented. Psalm 22 was written before crucifixion was even a thing. Did I put Psalm 22 on there? Let's read this. Ready? Hang with me for a minute as we read through this. A Psalm of David. This is a psalm. This is a prophecy. God gave the psalmist a glimpse of the crucifixion that hadn't even been invented. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Look in verse 2. Oh my God, I cried by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. This is a glimpse into what Jesus felt and endured on the cross for us in our sin. Yet you are holy. You are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In your fathers, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. This is what Jesus is going through on the cross. God, I'm calling out to you, but you're not answering me. You've forsaken me. But yet those of old, when they cried out to you, you delivered them. But I'm a worm and not a man. I'm reproach of men and despised. All who see me sneer at me. I'm despised by people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head. 
They wagged it. Did we not just read that the passers-by were wagging their heads at Jesus? We just read that hundreds of years before it was prophesied. And then it says, commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. Verse 9. Yet you who... Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb, and you made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Look in verse 10. Upon you I was cast from birth. You've been my God from my mother's womb. This is the Messiah talking. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There's no one to help. This is... Jesus experiencing this. Many bulls have surrounded me. It's they, The Roman soldiers were actually nicknamed bulls. Can you see this? The bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. Can you picture the Romans around him making a circle, mocking him? They open wide their mouth at me as a, ravi, a ravaging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue cleaves to my jaws. Jesus said, I thirst. You lay me in the dust of death. For the dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. And crucifixion wasn't even invented. I cannot count my bones. They look and stare at me. Meaning, meaning, when he looks down, he sees his bones. Meaning, when you're whipped, it would rip off flesh. You could see intestines and bones and ribs. Jesus is saying, I'm looking down. I can see my bones, but I can't even count how many bones that I have. Look at this, Psalm 22. It's prophesied, Louise. They divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible is real. The Bible is a real living book from a real living God who loves you and He loves me. This is real. This is not a game. This is real. All this proof... And the Jews still didn't believe. So look at verse 37, Mark 15. Almost done. Jesus uttered with a loud cry, and he breathed his last. Now I'm going to tell you something else you've probably never heard before. Maybe you have. Remember, crucifixion was supposed to take days. Remember, Pilate was shocked when they came and said Jesus was dead. He said, I don't believe it. Go send a centurion to double check. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus did not die because he was exhausted. Jesus did not die because he just expired. He cried with a loud voice. He had enough strength on the cross to still cry out with a loud voice. He gave up the ghost. He gave up his spirit. John 19.30, Jesus said, it is finished. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Did Jesus not say that no one can take my life? In John 10, I lay it down. Look with me at Luke 23 and verse 46. Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Remember Jesus said, it is finished. Check this out. This is awesome. This is going to rock your world. Say it is finished. This word, it is finished, Pastor Rick, was found on Greek documents. On Cornea Greek papyri, 
from the business district, and it was a commercial term. It is finished. It's a commercial term that means paid in full. They found this word, this inscription, on business documents from ancient Greece, and it meant paid in full. You owed me money. Here's the invoice. Paid in full. Jesus said it is finished. He said it is paid in full. The price for Luis's righteousness was paid in full. The price for Joyce's healing was paid in full. The price for my righteousness and my salvation, paid in full. Verse 38 of Mark 15. This is powerful. This is the third miracle. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. If it were torn bottom to top, you could say maybe a man did it. It was torn from top to bottom. Now we see curtains like that, like that little curtain back there. Are you ready for this? 60 feet long, 30 feet high, 4 inches thick. It's as thick as a man's hand. <coughs> what is this veil? What, is this, what does this do? <coughs> this veil separated what was called the holies of holies to the holiest of places. There's a holy place in the temple, which is where people could go and, 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 and there's certain priests that could go in. There's one place that was separated. There, You've got the outer courts of the temple and then the inner courts. It's called the holiest of holies. Once a year, the very high priest, only the high priest, could go into God's presence. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was, the mercy seat, and get atonement for the sins of the people. There were... There were, there were different levels in the temple that you could go to. Behind this curtain, 60 feet by 30 feet, 4 inches thick, thick as a man's hand, was the holiest of holies. That's where God's presence dwelt. And that veil was torn from the top to the bottom, meaning now we now have access to God's presence. Now we could see into God's presence. The thing which was hidden has now been revealed this means that now God has given access to His His people. Now we can access His grace. Now we can see the very throne of God. God restored relationship and intimacy with all of His followers. That's what the separating of the curtain signifies. But now verse 39 might be the most important verse in the Gospel of Mark. There is a centurion, a hardened Roman centurion, who had seen... Hundreds, possibly thousands of crucifixions. Something touched his heart. The gospel can penetrate the hardest of hearts. Notice this here. There was a centurion who was standing right in front of Jesus. After all this, after the temple fell being torn into, after the sky being darkened, he looked up and, and as Jesus breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Something different about this man. He was the Son of God. And that Mark puts us in the middle of that and says, if you encounter Jesus, He can impact and change your life in the same way. Now verse 40, this is interesting to me. It's just a side note kind of in the Scriptures, but it's very important. There are also some women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the less and of Joseph, and of Salmi. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't say there were men. I wish it did, but all the men ran and hid. All the men were scared. I mean, you know, it takes a woman to, have, to really be fearless, amen? This is awesome, too, because, Pastor Rick, this was in a society 
where women were not treated well, they were property, women did not have any value, women did not have any respect, but the gospel writers took time about to say that there were women there, and it made mention of them, and it made mention that they had served and followed Christ. God was giving value and place to women in ministry. Women had taken care of Jesus and, and the apostles and had a tremendous place in His ministry. And so I want to leave you with this thought today. God never forgets our sacrifice. Even, even, in this, even in this setting, we see women who had faithfully served and followed Jesus. Now, last scripture here is Hebrews chapter 6. God never forgets our sacrifice, never forgets our service. It says, For God is not unjust as to forget your work. These ladies were mentioned in the Gospels. For all to hear and all to see as a testimony that God had not forgotten their work. And it says, And the love which you have shown towards His name. And having ministered and is still ministering to the saints. You've ministered to the saints and you're still ministering to the saints. Verse 11, We desire that each one of you should show the same diligence as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Verse 12, So that you will not be sluggish. I mean, that's a good scripture for your teenagers right there. So you'll not be sluggish, but you'll be an imitator of those who faith, who through faith and patience, they inherit the promises. So God was faithful and rose Jesus from the dead, seated him at the right hand, the throne of God. The women were faithful. They stayed faithful to the end following Jesus. My commission to you is stay faithful. Stay faithful to the faithful one. He who, faith, who, he who is promised is faithful. God never forgets your work. He never forgets your love. You may think that you're serving and nobody notices, but God notices. These women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, the mother of uh, James, and, and, and we see these women, they may have thought everything we've done has been for naught. All the sacrificing has been for nothing. But yet God said, I see what you've done. I take note. I put it in my book. I put it. In. You made history because of your sacrifice and your serving and your ministering to people. Let it be said of us that we stay faithful just like these women to the very end. Let it be said of us that God will never forget our love and he'll never forget our sacrifices that we've made for his son and his kingdom. Just like we will never forget the sacrifices that Jesus made for us. Amen? Amen. Hope you learned something tonight. I sure did. This was a tremendous study. Come back next week. BJ's going to take us on a journey through the next passage here. And we're wrapping this thing up. We're about to land this plane. We're about to see the resurrection. We're about to see the commission of the church. It's going to be, it's going to be a dynamic ending. We're not letting down. We're not slowing up. I know we got three sessions left, but it is pedal to the metal. These last three sessions. Hey, you've made it this far. Don't give up now. Amen? Don't give up on it. Pastor Rick, would you come and pray a blessing over everybody and close this out? Wow. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you've done for us as your children, as your adopted children. And uh, what a remarkable thing to have uh, your son go through this. But as your word says, even though we were sinners... You saw it fit that Christ would die for us. And you say in Isaiah 53 that when all of this was accomplished, that you were satisfied. And we thank you, Lord, for sending your son to die for us. 
just so humbling. God, we thank you for that. We thank you for your goodness. Lord, I ask you just to continue to bless everybody that's here and give them a safe journey home. And and we thank you again for your goodness, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.